Uh, all right, we're going to go to John chapter 14 today. We're going to pick up our study, and we're not going to take off a very big bite today um, in terms of verses, but a big bite in terms of concept. Uh, and so John chapter 14 is where we're going to be today. Now, let me ask you, if, if I asked you to think about a place that you would put this label on, if you could imagine, maybe you've been there, maybe you haven't, maybe it's just a, an imaginary place in your mind. But if I said to you, heaven on earth, what place is heaven on earth to you? Yeah. All right. There's no bragging in church, okay? Aruba people. Heaven on earth. Now, if I told you that you had to, for the next year, work really hard, and it would be tough, and it would be a struggle, but in a year, exactly a year from today, you would be in whatever place that is, heaven on earth, you would be in that place, and you could enjoy that place for a month. You have a whole month in a place that you consider heaven on earth. You think you could make it for the year? You're unsure. Wow, rough year. Um, how about if I flipped it around? How about if I said, whatever place is heaven on earth to you, you could work really hard and it'd be tough for the month. And this is a short month, by the way. And then you could have a year at the place you consider heaven on earth. Could you do that? What if I told you you had to work one day and it would be tough. It'd be an awful day, worst day of your life. But then you could live for a hundred years at the place you consider heaven on earth. See, here's the thing. What we're going to talk about today is what Jesus promised his disciples. Really, really awesome verses. But it is this context of something that we don't really like called enduring. Enduring. People endure all kinds of things in this life. I'm sure that you have. I'm sure there's stuff that has showed up in your life. And you could put that term, it's something I had to endure on that thing. But there are people that, that, that endure things that are unimaginable to us. Poverty that is beyond our imagination. It is difficult for us to get our heads around the kind of poverty that exists in this world and that has existed in history because of the world in which we live. Things like slavery. It is difficult for you to imagine being born as property, having no say over your life, being free to be abused, beaten, used, killed on the whim of another human being. Enduring. Abuse. Lots of people that I talk to have some history of abuse in their past. And it is an internal wound. Just because it's not physical doesn't mean it's not overwhelming. People endure disease, heartbreak, disappointment, disillusionment, rejection from people that they love, betrayal from close friends. You may have even done some enduring this week. Unless it was an awesome week, you probably did some enduring. Why? Because enduring is a normal part of life. It's an everyday thing. Yesterday, I had a case study in enduring. I took our little dog to a free clinic to get a rabies shot for her, which is an interesting system altogether. <laughs> I can just tell you from the experience. It's a very interesting experience. Um, there were like hun literally hundreds of people. There's probably 300 people in this line 
with all these different pets, cats and dogs and whatever. Um, and we're standing outside, and it was kind of cold in the morning. It was really cold in the morning, actually. It was very, very cold. Um, made your hands numb and your feet numb, and, and lots of, you know, menagerie of animals and whatever. And we're standing there, and it, took, it actually took me two hours to get from the start to the end. So we're standing outside for two hours, holding the dog, trying to keep her from being bait for all these other big giant dogs. And, and what I noticed in this case study about endurance is people are not very in tune with the concept of enduring. We think enduring is a bad thing. And so there was complaining and, you know, griping. And, and when somebody representative of the, the township would come out, they would be like, what's going on in there? We're waiting. I've waited for 30 minutes, you know. And then, you know, and I really, what I really couldn't understand is why nobody else was joining in with me. I was like, you know, <laughs> come on, like, let's, let's start a movement here, right? Obviously, all of us have work to do in embracing endurance as a way of life. And the reality is we see the pains and the problems and, and this, this call in the New Testament to endure as something that is a last resort. Something that is like the last thing on my list. Well, if God can't do it any other way, I guess if he has to do it through enduring, I guess I'll endure. But God seems to bring it up more often than that. The norm for this life is to be filled with pain and burden, reason to worry, stress that's overwhelming. And what I would tell you is you can't opt out of those things. You can't opt out of your call to endure. But the mindset that you have in your enduring defines your experience. What do I mean by that? Here's what I mean. If you see that the storm that you're in as unending... If you see your call to endure as the new normal or just how things are, you will struggle to find the strength to keep going. If you give up any idea that anything will ever be different, if your enduring has convinced you that this is the end, that this is the way the story goes, then you will always be tempted to wave the white flag. You will find that you have very little strength, very little peace, very little joy in your life. On the other hand, if you see hardships as something you are called to endure so that you can go through, and that on the other side there will be rest and peace and joy and life, then you will actually have strength beyond reason. It's the difference between living with hope and living without it. Believing that no matter what I'm in today, a better day is coming. The difference between living with hope and no hope is unmeasurable and indescribable. And so today, as we read this, as we kind of go through what Jesus says to his disciples here, what I'm asking is, what do you believe about your life, about the enduring that you're doing? Do you believe that the mess that you're in is just what life is, that it is your destiny to suffer and keep on suffering? Well, theoretically, you may not believe that, but do you practically believe that? Have you given up hope? Or do you believe, are you actively holding on to the idea that enduring leads to deliverance, leads to something more? Maybe you're there and you're like, well, Mark, at one time I believed it led to something more, but that was a long time ago, and I feel like that was just naive, and eventually I gave up on it. 
I thought maybe there was a better day coming, but day after day went by, month after month went by, year after year went by, and it didn't only get not better, it got worse. And as it got worse, I became more and more convinced that I was foolish to believe that any relief was ever coming. Maybe that's you. And what I would suggest to you, if that's you, is it may possibly be that you put your hope in something that wasn't actually coming. That you put your hope in something that wasn't promised, that wasn't real. Maybe it was in a time frame that wasn't real. I want it at this point or at that point. And I will tell you that draining hope from our lives is one of the biggest and most impact-filled strategies that the enemy has for you to drain the hope from your life because it neutralizes the children of God in their call to both glorify God and to share Jesus Christ with other people. When I live without hope, I am absolutely powerless to fight off Satan's trap. And so we're going to read these verses and I'm going to try to put them in some context. There's only three verses, so we're going to read them one at a time. So John chapter 14, verse 1 should be super familiar, really, really comforting to people over thousands of years. So we're going to start at verse 1. Here's what he says. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Do not let your heart be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. This is where Jesus starts. Now, if you've ever memorized this passage, if you've ever heard it, you just hear it kind of like broken out of, uh, of the story. But we've been going through the story, and so we know where this is in the story. Jesus is at the Last Supper. He has just made a declaration to his disciples that one of you is going to betray me. It'd be kind of like me standing up here and saying this morning, one of you this morning in this place has a gun and you're going to come shoot me before the service is over. It's, that's, kind of like the, that's the impact that it had. And what would you do if, I, if you actually believed that, if I said that, if I was you know, like Jesus-like and I had the ability to tell you what was coming, and I said that, you'd start looking around. Like, who is? That's the beginning of this story. It starts with Jesus washing their feet, and then Jesus saying, one of you is going to be the end of me tonight. I'm leaving you now. And you can't go with me. And so you're going to be alone. You're going to feel abandoned. They're certainly confused. You can feel the chaos in the room and the turmoil in the room. And so Jesus puts this word on it, troubled. Your hearts are troubled. And by the way, when Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me, and that's going to mean that I'm no longer here with you, and I'm going away from this world, I'm going back to the Father, this was not far-fetched. Do you recognize it, even as we've gone through the book of John, how many times the people around Jesus wanted to kill him? Jesus had really, really gotten under the skin of some powerful people. And there were times where they were looking for stones big enough to throw at his head so it would kill him. And so the disciples were not like, you know, just overreacting here when Jesus is saying, I'm leaving, and this is a life and death thing. And so Jesus has just said to Peter, um, Peter, you will betray me. You will deny me three times tonight. Jesus made an announcement that someone's going to betray him, and the only person he talks about negatively in the rest of the story is Peter, their leader. And can you imagine Peter when Jesus turns to him and says, no, you will deny you even know me. Can you imagine how that just threw that room into confusion? Can you imagine the outburst 
in that room? Peter wants to stand up and be strong. I love you, Lord, and I want to go with you. I will go with you even to death. And Jesus says, you won't even stay with me to just let people know that you know me tonight. So this is going on, and it's crazy. And so Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. The word for troubled hearts is literally shaken. We, we talk about uh, troubled waters, to, to stir the waters, to, to stir the pot. That's kind of the idea. It's this emotional, just absolutely in, a, in an uproar thing. And what would trouble their hearts? What would, what would get them all stirred up inside? The same kind of stuff that gets you and I stirred up. First of all, there were some unexpected things happening. Jesus says, I'm going to leave. They weren't expecting him to leave. Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. They weren't expecting one of them to betray him. Now, they've left everything, their jobs, their careers, everything, to follow him. And now Jesus says, yeah, that's not going to pay off for you because I'm leaving and I'm, I'm not going to be with you anymore. And they're like, what? what? Wait, what? I thought the kingdom, you're the king, kingdom, right? Where this, is, this goes on from here, right? This doesn't end here. Their hearts are troubled by the same things that trouble us. The unexpected loss. And unexpected always leads us to the root of troubled hearts, which is uncertainty. I don't know what's coming. I don't know what it's going to be like. I don't know if I can deal with it. There are times in life where I am more aware of that than others, but the reality is life is uncertain, isn't it? We know that somewhere in our heads. But when something shows up out of nowhere, when life takes a left turn and I didn't expect it to, that's when I'm face-to-face with the reality that life is uncertain. Sometimes sickness shows up, and, or you, you come face-to-face with the reality that life is very fragile. You have more bills than you have money, right? You have a relationship stress in a relationship that you never thought it would be or a relationship you never wanted it to be in. You failed at something that you really poured your heart into. You have battles in the workplace and you don't know how they're going to work out. You don't know what's coming tomorrow or you don't know where you're going to be next year. And uncertainty fills our life. And uncertainty, in many ways, stirs up our human troubled hearts. And so Jesus says to them, Do not let your hearts be troubled. What's he saying? Here's what he says to you and I. You have a choice. You have a choice about how you are going to react to the stuff that would trouble your soul. A choice about how to react to loss and pain. How can I choose whether my heart is troubled or not? Aren't they just emotions? Kind of, yeah. But here's what Jesus says to them. We tend to think that the trouble in my heart has an external source. If I could get rid of what, what the, the trouble in my heart, I could get rid of it if I could fix something out there that went the wrong way. If that person would change, then my troubled heart would calm down. If that circumstance would get fixed, then my troubled heart... We think about what's going on inside of us as... It, it, unlike breakably linked to what's happening out there. What's happening would be troubling. But Jesus says to them, do not let your heart be troubled. Jesus says the decision about having a troubled heart is internal. It's a decision you can make. And it's a decision you can make now. 
Well, what does he say? How does he say to do that? Well, he starts by saying, trust in God, trust also in me. Trust is really the same word for believe, the idea of placing your trust in his, placing your life in his hands, trusting him with you. Trusting him with your life, your yesterdays, your today, your tomorrows. Trusting him with you. Do you trust God with you? Do you trust him with the stuff that you did in the past? The regrets that you have, the shames that you carry, the guilt. Do you trust him with that? The heartache, the pain, the loss that you've suffered. Do you trust him with that? Are you still living, responding to it? Are you still trying to deal with it? Do you trust him with today? That where you are today may not be as far as you want it to be, or you may not be exactly in the place you want to be, but you're here, and he's here, and my life is in his hands. And do you trust him with tomorrow, with what's coming? Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. The answer to troubled hearts is to believe, to trust. And he's going to say something he wants them to trust in. And that trust will throw water on the fire of the trouble of their hearts. By the way, before we read the next verse, the word believe here, trust in God, the tense of that verse suggests a way of life, not a moment of decision. I was just reading this book that I thought was super insightful. And it said, commitment is way overrated. Commitment is way overrated, um, especially in relationships. Um, and, And the point that he was making is, that people think that when you get up in front of people and you say vows to each other, that everything changes because you made a commitment. We would like that, wouldn't we? We would like our faith to be declarative. This is the case, and so forevermore it will be. But the problem is, until you start making decisions, the commitment doesn't mean anything. And the decisions have to line up with the commitment day after day, week after week, month after month. Right? And so I would like for it to be, come today and trust in God and trust in Jesus and you're done. You're settled. It's good. You're good forever. But that's not what this verb says. This verb says, believe in me, choose to believe in me, and then choose to believe in me, and then choose to believe in me, and then trust me, and then trust me. That's what it says. And it's like, so right now, do you have reason to to, to be worried, to be stirred up, to be troubled? Yes. So what's the answer to that? Oh, yeah, that's right. My life is not in my hands. My life's in your hands. I'm going to trust you. Father, lead me. Is there something I should say? Is there something I should do? I'm not going anywhere till you lead me because my life's in your hands. I'm desperate to hear from you. I know what I think, I know what I feel, but I want you to lead me. And so here's the answer he gives him. Today, uh, or this night, and into the next day, is going to be a time of great emotional struggle and trouble for them. And so he says to them, don't let your hearts be troubled. In verse 2, here's the promise he gives them, a, a truth that he gives them to hold on to through the hard time, to endure. Verse 2, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, and I am going there to prepare a place for you. The ultimate answer to a troubled heart is this. Whatever you're facing, whatever is difficult, whatever is painful, will pass. It will not be forever. If your life is in the hands of God, it is absolutely guaranteed to be temporary because you are. You are on this earth for a while and then we are no more here. 
And whatever pain and struggle is in this life is a pain and struggle that will stay in this life. And then I will be delivered. Jesus is asking his disciples to live believing this promise, to trust both what he is saying and to trust the Father. So here's what I'm offering to you today. I'm offering you the promise of Jesus Christ based on his word alone that there is heaven and there is deliverance and there is a hope for every single person who's here. Now, what he says is in order to get that, you have to be his. You have to put your trust in Christ. If you're here today and you've never done that, you've never decided to take your soul and give it to Christ, to let him wash away your past and let him guarantee your future, if you've never done that, he's offering it to you. But if you have done that, he's asking you to live holding on to that promise. I go to repair a place for you. These disciples are all in an uproar. It's about to be the darkest moment of their life. And Jesus says to them, remember this, know this, believe this. What you experience, what you see is not the last chapter. It's not the end of the story. It's not where this is all going. That there is a day that is coming that will ultimately replace every burden, every care, every pain, every loss, every struggle, every worry, every hurt, and they will never come back. That's what Jesus promised you. And so what I'm inviting you to do today is the same thing Jesus invited his disciples to do. Trust in that. Hold on to that. He describes it, my father's house. He refers to heaven as he talks about my father's house, a place of living beyond this world and beyond this life. Now, you could dig into this and try to figure out what heaven will be like. People have done that a lot. Um, The word here, uh, we we read about in in the word of God, uh, descriptions of our eternal home. What will it be like? You can read in Revelation about our eternal home with streets of gold and a river of life and no night No sickness, no sorrow, no dying, no tears. Sound good? No? Yeah. It is spoken of in Psalm 1611 as a place of eternal joy. Uh, The psalmist writes, You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence and with eternal pleasures at your right hand. If you really believed this is coming and will be forever yours, would that make a difference in the struggle you face? If the Satan has convinced you that you just better give in and suck it up and stick with it because this is the way life is and it's never going to get any better and you are without strength and without hope and without joy, this is the answer. Jesus says, my father's house is a place for you. And what he describes it like, he says, in my Father's house are many rooms. The word that we we have heard before in that place is, in my Father's house are many mansions. Now, I know that you've been designing your mansion for a long time, but that's not actually the word. Um, The word mansion came out of the Latin Vulgate, which was a translation of the Bible around 400, 500 uh, A.D., 
Uh, and the, the, that had actually a theological background to it. It meant one of many stopping places or stations. There was an idea uh, at that time that on your way to heaven, there were lots of stations that you had to go from one to the next. And so in my father's house, there are many stations. That, that's kind of the word that they use. But that's not what Jesus says. In my father's house are many rooms. He is referring to uh, the cultural norm of that time. Many places for people to live as part of the patriarchal home. When a, when a son got married, what he would do is he would the, the, the betrothal would take place, the, the arrangement would be made, the son would go back to his homestead, back to his dad's house, and he would build a living space onto the family home. It was this idea of rooms, a living space, connected to the main home as a part of the family, sharing in the family life, but separate and big enough and large enough for that family to live there. Now, I don't mean to diminish your idea of heaven and say that you're not getting a mansion, but Jesus isn't really talking about how awesome it will be. We talk about that other places. He's emphasizing something different. I don't want you to think that this is, we're all going to be cramped in these little apartments. As a matter of fact, the description in the Word of God of the, the New Jerusalem, the city of God, uh, puts the footprint of it at about 2 million square miles and about that high too, which if you cube that that's a lot of that's a lot of space and that's just the city that's not including the new heavens and the new earth right we were talking this morning a little bit about you know will i get bored in heaven you know forever what's that all about we think way too small about heaven you know you well i got forever yeah well just think about how big the universe is today in comparison to the planet Has anybody exhausted all the interesting things of this world? Have you been everywhere and seen everything? Okay. This planet, in comparison to our universe, do you have a a concept of the difference in size there? We measure the earth in miles. We measure the universe in light years. The amount of distance that going 186,000 miles a second will take you if you travel that, that many seconds for a year. That's a lot of miles. And the idea is, heaven is not small. Heaven is not constricting. Heaven is a wonderful place of pleasure and joy. The biggest thing is all of the stuff that makes life stink is gone. All the mistakes and pains. What Jesus is emphasizing here is not how awesome your new home will be because it's a mansion. What he's emphasizing is that even though I'm leaving you, we will be together again forever. That's what he's saying. I'm going, but I'm going to go make a place for you so that we don't have to live apart like we're going to have to for a little while now. Jesus says, I am going there to prepare a place for you, but then we will be united. That's why I'm going. So that right now you can't follow, but you will follow later. If you've ever experienced the loss of someone you love when they leave this earth, you know how overwhelming that can be. Everything about that moment feels permanent, right? They are gone forever. And that's what the disciples would feel in this moment as they they look to Jesus is going to leave us, he's going to die. But Jesus says it's not permanent. It's not for those who belong to him, it's not permanent. For those whose eternal home is with him, this is temporary. And even the death of a loved one can find hope for a troubled heart. Jesus says the separations we face are temporary, short-lived. 
So the choice that we make, that Jesus says, don't let your heart be troubled, is a choice about whether there is hope and deliverance for me and for those I love or whether there isn't. That's the choice he's calling us. He says the connection of of the condition of your troubled heart is connected to your focus. What are you looking at? You looking at this or are you looking at that? What I will tell you is when we get discouraged, we get all wrapped up in right here. I would say this. If you don't know Christ, I don't know how you live. I don't know how you find any joy. Because if all I'm looking at is the right here, right now, what I know for sure is that I don't know what's coming. And I know how that story ends. If this is all we have, if the here and now is all we have, I know it ends forever if this is all we have. If I'm a believer, however, I live differently. I live with a focus not on what's going on right here. I live not getting stuck looking down. Our instant gratification world defines enduring differently than the Bible. You know, in our world, if you had, you had to endure, here's your story of endurance. Well, I was at Starbucks, and there were like five people in front of me, and one of them ordered like a bunch of drinks, and I had to be there a whole like 10 minutes. It's awful. Or I was on my way to work today, and there was this ridiculous person in front of me that was going five miles an hour below the speed limit, and I had to endure it the whole way to church. That's our concept today. If it's bad, what's our world's solution? Get rid of it. If you don't like this relationship anymore, end it. If you think that this job isn't making you happy, get rid of it. There is no value to endurance today. And so when Jesus calls us to enduring, he's saying, lift your eyes up from the here and now. Don't define what's happening, good or bad, by the here and now. Lift your eyes up beyond that to your eternal home that I have promised you. Do you believe? Will you live believing that? And so in this world, in this life, in our culture, talking about enduring in this life, you know, enduring, what if you had to live the rest of your life in some awful circumstance? And God called you to endure that. What if you were one of the recipients of the letters back here in, 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 in the epistles where, you know, someone is a slave and they're just called to endure it. They are called to serve their masters like they serve the Lord. And if they, you know, Peter says, if you do well and you are abused for it, you're to take it. You're to endure it. James says, persevere until the end. What if you were called to something like that? What if the rest of your life was persevering? Do you value that? Do you see that as a good thing? The only way you can is if you look past it to the promise and not just to the here and now. If you look down the road. The answer to a troubled heart is to have confidence in this promise and all the promises of Jesus that it makes to those who believe and trust him that pain will pass, that joy will come, that it is guaranteed to be yours. And it offers you the opportunity to live in the reality of what you have not yet seen if you will just trust what he promises. Jesus finishes by saying in verse 3, And if I go... And prepare a place for you. I will come back and take you to be with me so that you may also be where I am. Jesus says, a lot of times when we read in the the New Testament, we read the word if. It sounds very conditional to us. If I go, if I go. Jesus is not saying like, I'm not sure what's going to happen, but if I go, that's not what he's saying, right? It's a real good illustration of what he's saying. Since I'm going. And a lot of times if you take the word since and put it in where the word if is, you can get a better picture. 
Like Bible talks about if we've been risen with Christ, it's really since we've been risen with Christ. Like, like that kind of thing. Now it happens over and over in Scripture. Because the, the understanding of the conditional if in other cultures was a little different than our understanding of it. And so since I am going, because I'm going, what's the reason that I'm going? I'm going to come back. I'm going to prepare a place so that I can come back and take you to be with me and you can be where I am. Do you see how that addresses their troubled heart? What's troubling their heart? Jesus is leaving. I'm going and I will come back and get you. Now there's lots of debate over you know, what the future is as described by the apostles, what order of things happens and, and what different symbols mean in the book of Revelation. But there's no real debate over anybody who believes the Bible about this. Number one, judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Now, maybe that sounds harsh to you, but here's the reality. Every single person on this earth, whether they believe in God or not, wants judgment to come, at least to some measure. There are people out there that are doing awful, horrible things, and something inside of you goes, somebody needs to make them face that. Maybe not my stuff. My stuff's okay, but their stuff. Somebody needs to make them face that, right? I mean, when you think about the great criminals and the great atrocities of earth, somebody's got to do something about that, right? And, it, and if you really stop and think about it, as a human being, I'm powerless to ever rise up to the level where I could actually do something that measures up to that, right? So judgment is coming. God is coming to judge. That's a guarantee. That is without question in the word of God, that the God of all the universe will return and will judge the earth. The other thing that's not really debatable about the future is that Jesus is coming. Jesus is returning for his people. He's coming back to get those who trust in him. One day, everyone will answer for their life. And one day, all those who trust Jesus will be rescued by him. That's the hope. I'm not promising it to you. Jesus is promising it to you. Will you believe you and I may or may not be among those who remain on the earth when he comes. Paul thought he was going to be. You know, 1 Thessalonians 4, when we who are alive and remain at the coming of the Lord, we, that's third person, singular. I mean, third, third person, first person, third, whatever. <laughs> it's grammar. But what he's saying is this, instead of living this life, looking at what's happening around you and letting it trouble your hearts, Lift up your eyes to the promise that has been made. Man, if you look at this life, if you look at what's happening in this world, there is no way you can't get troubled in your soul. I'm saying in your life, I'm saying in the world at large, in our country, it's troubling. Except, Jesus says, don't let your heart be troubled. Instead, let it help you long for the deliverance and the joy that comes from going home with Jesus. Let that promise be alive in you. And so today we're going to close our service with a song. And the song is basically an invitation um, for you to trust Christ like that. To say, I've got my life. I've got to choose where I'm going to put it. Am I going to put it in my hands or in your hands? And so, my tomorrows, what's coming, who's got that for you? Your yesterdays, all of that's gone on in your life before this day, 
Who's got that for you? Are you still trying to fix it? Are you still trying to guarantee the future? Or are they in his hands? When we get down to it, the promise, the promise that Jesus made to you, the invitation is there based on the word of Jesus. Will you live with hope or will you live without it? The choice is yours. The invitation has been made.